You're listening to Mapleview Community Church Podcast. Thank you much, Pastor Jay. It is such an honor and a privilege for us to be with you here at Mapleview Community Church on Thanksgiving weekend. We have so much to be thankful for, don't we? As a nation, you know, all of the world doesn't live like we do here in Canada. We need to stop and take time to thank Jesus for this great country that we have. But more importantly than that, I'm thankful for the name of Jesus. Are you thankful for that name, the name that is above every other name today? <laughs> you know, I love 1 Peter 1 verse 9. This is what it says. It says, what a God we have and how fortunate we are to have him. I don't know about you, but I would be very unfortunate if it wasn't for Jesus Christ. But I've come all the way from Uganda to tell you something this morning. Good news. He is famous for turning the unfortunate into the fortunate. You see, I'm just a simple Canadian pastor's daughter from Marmara, Canada, who's been married to this missionary kid for, it will be 50 years this coming June. But it was 40 years ago that God called Gary and I to go to Uganda. You know, God still speaks to people today. He didn't just speak to men like Noah and say, hey, boy, it's going to rain. Build me a boat. He still speaks to men and women today. And 40 years ago, God spoke to Gary. And he said, Gary, I want you to move to Kampala, Uganda. I want you to start a church downtown in the heart of the city. And through that church, I'll touch the city and I'll touch the nation. So we moved there. Uganda was not a country people were running to back then. It was a country everybody was running away from. It was so dangerous. We used to hear gunfire every single night, sometimes across the city, sometimes across the street, sometimes right in our front yard. We have experienced firsthand the horrors of war, and we have seen suffering like you only read about in books. But what a God we have, and how fortunate we are to have him. We'd only been there a few months. Gary was away picking up our missionary vehicle. I was all alone with our kids. They were four, six, and eight. When in the middle of the night, a gang of thieves, 25 men, came to our house. For three hours, they tried to break down a simple wooden door that I could have broken down myself. But they could not get through. I could hear them trying to push that door down. And I don't know where I got the strength from. But I do know adrenaline is a drug and it works. I got furniture and I barricaded myself in that room and I had one thing on my mind. I cannot wait for the man of God to get home because when he gets home, I'm going to give him a piece of my mind. I had the scene all worked out. He was going to pull the car down the driveway, roll the window down, and he thought I was going to come and give him a big kiss, but that's not what I was going to do. I was going to go storming up with my hands on my hips, and I was going to say, Gary, what kind of a crazy man could bring a wife and three children to a place like this? You need your head red. They have a name for you here in Uganda, Mulalu. But you know, I heard a voice, and it was the voice of Jesus. And I heard him say, come on, get up, girl, get up. I didn't bring you to Uganda to be paralyzed by fear. I brought you here for a purpose. And I had to make what I think is probably one of the most important choices I've ever made in my life. I had to choose, was my fear going to be stronger than my faith? Or was my faith going to be stronger than my fear? And I thought, God, if you can keep 25 men out of that door, there is nothing in this world that you cannot do. So I chose 
to put my faith in that name that is above every other name. <laughs> Here we are 40 years later. A little while later, we were eating dinner. Two armed gunmen walked into our house, walked up to Gary, put a gun in his head and said, everybody put your head on the table now and I'll never forget it. My 12-year-old son looked at me, rolled his eyes in his head and plopped his head down into his bowl of chili. And they said to Gary, we want all the money that you have, dollars, pounds, shillings, everything. And back then, we used to keep a little bit of money, about $100 in the filing cabinet. We used to call it thieves' money. Just in case they came, they wouldn't believe that you didn't have money. So Gary lifts his head up and says, keep yourself calm. We'll get you what you want, and you can leave. The one man said, don't let him talk to you like that. Just shoot him. He said, money, we want money. So Gary takes him to the office. But the filing cabinet was locked, and the keys were in my purse. So they pushed him to the ground. They ripped electrical cables out of the wall. They tied him up in what was called the bow tie, where they put your elbows behind your back. Then they came and got me, got the keys, tied me and my kids up in the bow tie, ransacked our house, got the money that was there, and decided it wasn't enough money. One man reaches down, pulls me by the electrical cables to my feet, and says, lady, we need more money. This isn't enough money. I said, I'm sorry, we don't have any more money. I've given you everything we have. He looks at me and he says, maybe you don't understand. Tonight you're going to lose your life unless you give me more money now. And it was like a boldness came over me. I looked him straight in the eyes and I said, you can go ahead and shoot me right now. We don't have any more money. Gary told me later, Marilyn, that was the most stupid thing you could ever say. You don't tell someone to shoot you and the gun was at the back of my head, not yours. The man in charge said, okay, shoot her husband. He cocked the gun. He pulled the trigger and nothing happened. He said, shoot her husband. He cocks the gun again, pulls the trigger, nothing happens. He said, I said, shoot her husband, now shoot him now. And his hand started shaking. And he said, I can't, I can't, I can't shoot him. And he looked at me, he said, are you a Christian? I said, of course we're Christians, we're pastors. It was like a blanket of confusion fell from heaven. Those men picked up what was in their hands and they ran out of our house. What a God we have and how fortunate we are to have him. <laughs> we started our church in the Imperial Hotel, the Crystal Suite. <laughs> but it wasn't Imperial, it wasn't Crystal, and it wasn't Sweet. There were no light bulbs. We had to screw the light bulbs in ourselves. There were no chairs. We had to air freight 400 chairs in from London and chain them to the water pipe so nobody would steal them during the week. But 75 people showed up for that very first service. <laughs> and the most important person of all showed up. And friends, when Jesus walks through the doors, when Jesus walks into the room, everything changes. People change, cities change, nations change. Never underestimate the power of the presence of Jesus because he changes everything. After about two years, we had outgrown the Imperial Hotel and we were led to what was called the, what was the largest public auditorium in the whole country. It was an old movie theater that would seat about 1,700 people. And I'll never forget walking in through the side doors. The roof leaked so badly that when it rained, you needed an umbrella inside to stay dry. The screen was torn, the theater seats were ripped, and as we walked through those doors, Gary had a vision. He didn't see it the way it was. He saw it the way it could be. I mean, isn't that just like Jesus? When he looks at you and me, he doesn't see us the way we are. He sees us the way we could be. When Jesus looks at Canada, he doesn't see it the way it is today. He sees it the way it could be and the way it should be. 
And we knew that was the building we had to have, but we had a little problem because civil war was going on. When the army would catch the rebels, they would bring them to that building, they would torture them, and they would even kill them in that building. So we did the only thing we knew what to do. When you call on Jesus, anything, anything is possible. So we prayed. One month, no change. Two months, no change. Six months, no change. We're still praying one year later. The political situation got so bad that one day the American ambassador came to our house and he said, Mr. Skinner, I cannot tell you that you need to leave Uganda, but you need to ask yourself, why are you here? And I was like, oh, Jesus, you have sent a prophet to our house today. Gary, listen to the American ambassador. We got down on our knees because we had a desire more than anything else to do what pleased Jesus, to be obedient. And we prayed and we said, God, if you want us to go, we'll go. But if you want us to stay, we will stay. And God said, stay. Go and ask to use that building for two weeks. When you go in, you won't go out. So we went to the army, asked them if we could use the building for two weeks, and they said yes. In the middle of two weeks of special evangelistic meetings, a military coup took place. All of the soldiers that had threatened our lives ran for their lives, leaving us from that building, and we have never left. God miraculously gave us that building January 1986. And today, we see with our eyes what we saw in our spirit. It's been renovated, full of light, jam-packed full of people with their hands raised, worshiping Jesus. Over 36,000 people come every Sunday, transformed by the power of the presence of Jesus. Wow. The Uganda you will come to visit today is not the Uganda I moved to. Because every sphere of influence has been transformed by the power of the presence of Jesus. In the late 80s, AIDS broke out. Uganda was the epicenter of AIDS. Out of 22 million people, 2 million little boys and girls were left orphaned as a result. And God spoke again. He said, Gary, I want you to look after my kids. Gary's like, God, I don't want to look after kids. I want to preach. And Jesus said, I did not send you to Uganda to do what you want. I sent you to Uganda to do what I want. And he showed us what really impresses him. And it wasn't how many people came to our church, how good our screens were, how fantastic our worship was. But did we do something about the plight of those little boys and girls left to suffer on their own? So we began to rescue children one at a time, one at a time. Not put them in an institution, but put them in a family where they're a name with a face and a future to raise and disciple for Jesus Christ the next generation of African leaders. And today, aren't you glad there's a today? We don't have to live in yesterday. We can live in today and tomorrow. Today, I think I am one of the most blessed women in all the world. Because we have over 5,000 little boys and girls who have been raised to become transformation agents. We have politicians, doctors, lawyers, teachers, electricians, plumbers, businessmen, mechanics, farmers, mothers and fathers, all knowing that they have been rescued and raised so that they can make a difference in their country. These are little boys and girls who yesterday thought they were nothing. But Jesus delights in taking nothing and making something out of it. I want to say to you, Canada, we're not a big nation. We're not a superpower in the world. We're a little nation, actually. But I believe God's up to something. I believe that in his heart, he wants to raise up something from the nothing that we think we have and do something miraculously with Canada. Do you believe that? 
I believe it with all of my heart, and I'm here to say it can happen because what a God we have and how fortunate we are to have him. Wow, she's an amazing little lady, but we serve an amazing big God. A couple years ago, one of the little boys in our church was invited to participate in the Special Olympics. Of course, the Special Olympics are for boys and girls, teenagers and adults who have disabilities. This little boy had Down syndrome. One of the events that took place there that year was the 100-meter sprint for boys and girls aged 11. Eight little disabled 11-year-olds got down into the starting blocks. The starter's pistol was ready. The massive crowd went silent. And when the pistol went off, the little boys and girls burst out of the blocks, sort of. Then they ran down that track just as hard as their little legs could carry them. You could see the strain in their faces as they were running, trying to reach that finish line first. And as they were running, one of the little boys near the front tripped and he fell and he went down on the rough track and he cut his knee and he cried out in pain. Each of the other boys and girls that were running with him, when they saw his, him fall down, they slowed down, they stopped, they turned around, they went down and got down beside him. One of the little girls wiped the blood from his knee, kissed it and said, there, it's all better now. And then they all got up, they joined their arms and they all walked across the finish line together. Spontaneously, that massive crowd leapt to its feet and gave them the longest standing ovation of the Special Olympics that year. For 15 minutes, they clapped and they cheered and they howled and they hooted and they whistled as eight little disabled 11-year-olds showed the whole world that winning in life is not crossing the finish line first, but loving and caring for those that have fallen on the way, picking them up and making winners out of them too. Ooh. Isn't that just the heart of Jesus? Every one of us in the race of life has stumbled and fallen and cut our knee. But Jesus, the great winner, has stopped, turned around, got down beside us, kissed us. And he's in the process of making winners out of all of us too. That's Jesus. That's who Jesus is. When Jesus was here 2,000 years ago, whenever he found a wounded, bruised, battered, broken heart, someone crying out in pain, do you know what Jesus did? He stopped. He reached out his hand and he touched them. And with one touch of Jesus' hand, he changed their lives forever. That's Jesus. That's what he does. He does. Like little old blind Bartimaeus. Do you remember him? sitting beside the road, begging for a few scraps just to survive. And then one day in the monotony of his life, he heard the commotion of the crowd as the Christ passed by. Who is it? What's the noise, he asked. Someone said, it's Jesus of Nazareth. They say he's a miracle worker, heals the sick. Some say he's the Messiah. And little old blind Bartimaeus knew this was his only hope. So he stood up on his tired old legs and he cried out, Son of David, have mercy on me. Everybody around him said, sit down, old man. He doesn't care about you. But they were wrong. You go read it again. The Bible says he cried out even louder. Son of David, son of David, have mercy on me. 
And I believe that a cry for mercy from a hurting heart is like sweet music to the ear of Jesus. He can't hear that cry and just walk by. He didn't then. He stopped, isolated the cry, and called the old man. I can see those around Bartimaeus Maeus saying, he's calling you. I can see him stumbling across the road, finding Jesus, and kneeling down at the most wonderful place in the whole universe where anything is possible at the feet of Jesus. And he looked up with glazed over eyes that could see nothing. And Jesus still asked him, what can I do for you? That I might see, Lord. And then Jesus did it. He reached out his hand. He touched him. And Bartimaeus' eyes opened up and his life was changed forever. And the first thing he ever saw in life was Jesus. That's Jesus. What about the woman caught in adultery? Her life was over, judged, condemned, rejected, except for one thing, Jesus. And Jesus touched her with a touch of love like she'd never been touched before and changed her life and her destiny forever. Because that's what Jesus does. What about the little children who came to see Jesus and the disciples chased them away and Jesus said, no, bring the children. And I can see Jesus sitting down on a big rock and gathering the children around him, scooping a little girl up onto his knee and telling them a Bible story, maybe Daniel in the lion's den. And then the Bible says he put his hands on them, he touched them and he blessed them. I can see him kiss the little girl on her cheek and send them back to their mothers. He touched them and changed their lives forever because that's what Jesus does. How about the little boy who came with lunch to hear Jesus preach? And when Jesus touched his lunch, it became a banquet for thousands. What about the little widow? On the vi from the village of Nain on the way to the cemetery to bury her only son. Her husband's in the grave and now her only hope is gone, her boy. And the Bible says she was crying and Jesus, when he heard her crying and saw her tears, he went over, he stopped the funeral procession and he did it again. He reached out his hand and he touched the dead boy and the dead boy sat him up, sat up and he gave him back to his mama, changed their lives forever because that's what Jesus does. Wherever Jesus finds a crying, hurt, broken, wounded heart, he stops, touches, and changes their lives forever. The greatest way that Jesus ever reached out and touched was not when he reached out like this with his hand to touch one, but when he reached out his hands like this and they nailed those beautiful hands to a rough Roman cross. And when he reached out like this, he touched one, but when he reached out like this, he touched the whole world. And he never stopped touching, even on the cross. He managed to reach across and touch the thief on the cross next to him and changed his destiny forever because that's what Jesus does. When Jesus was here 2,000 years ago, how did he touch a hurting world? Through his body. How does Jesus still touch a hurting world today? Through his body. We are 
to be the healing, helping touch of Jesus to a hurting world. The church, Ephesians chapter 1 says, is Christ's body through which he speaks and through which he acts. The hope of the world, the best thing that can ever happen to any community is the church shows up. And it's not what one man does behind a pulpit on Sunday that matters, but what everybody does on Monday matters. It's what missions is all about. That's what the church is all about. It's not about another meeting, but it's about another moment to hear a hurting cry. And that's why God sent us to Uganda, because there were people crying out in the civil war, in the pain. And you've heard the story of the little boys and girls who lost their moms and their dads through AIDS or through war. Child-headed households, little boys and girls lying on a mud hut floor somewhere in the middle of Africa, hungry, no hope for school, and crying out, Oh, God, why me? I just want to die. And whenever someone cries out, Jesus always hears, and he always responds, How? By sending someone to touch them. Marilyn heard the cry of the women of our city. Hundreds of thousands of them in the slums, abandoned by their men. Or their men have died. Maybe fathered their children, two, three, four, five, six, seven children. Can't send them to school. Maybe trying to survive by sex trafficking, sex industry. Every night crying, oh God, I don't know if I can handle this. And when they cry out, God hears. So he sent Marilyn and with the ladies of the church, they began to embrace the hurting woman of the slums of our community. And yes, we're a big church. And yes, we're a rich church. And yes, we've got all kinds of influential people in our city. But my job is to raise up an army of people who will not just drive by the slums to their, from their nice house to their nice, to their nice job, but to stop in the slums. We have about 2,500 small groups in our church. We commissioned every group to find a, a vulnerable woman, woman in, in their community and go and touch them with their hands and love them and care for them. One of the, I was at a, at a meeting one day at one of our campuses we have about 16 campuses and as we were going to have lunch there was a special event the, the pastor said oh you see this lady who's serving lunch I said I'll tell you her story when we're eating she served me her the lunch we went and sat down she said one of our cells went and found this they said they'd heard that you told them to find a woman so they found this woman she was lying she was dying of HIV they came to her home knocked at the door no one answered they went in the smell was terrible she'd been lying for two or three days in her own mess her own vomit they reached down they embraced her they began to love her she said please don't touch me but they did that was the women that the woman that got changed by the touch of a cell group in her home. Now she's found Jesus. She became what they said was the greatest evangelist because everybody said, what happened to you? Somebody touched me. 
We heard about the children in northern Uganda that had been abducted and taken as child soldiers to, to, to in, in the war in northern Uganda. One of, two of our little girl, uh, children were stolen. One was a little girl. Uh, uh, we never heard from the boy again, but if, several late, years later, we, we'd, we'd been praying for her. We heard that she'd escaped. Marilyn said, I'm going to go up and find Irene. So she went up. She went to her home. She sat in her home. Irene, she said, Irene, tell me your story. She really didn't want to, but she did anyway. And she said, they came in the middle of the night, and they took us, my, myself and our siblings, and we ran all throughout the night, gathered other children, Sometimes the children got tired. The soldiers said, well, you can rest here. And then they would sit down by a tree and they would beat the complaining child to death. They said, we're not going to stop. And then they would run. Her little sister, when she thought the soldiers weren't watching and tried to escape, they grabbed her, brought her back, and they beat the little sister to death and forced Irene and her siblings to join in that beating. She finally got to the rebel camp the next day. The soldiers all took off their shirts, threw them in a pile, told the girls, pick up a shirt. Whatever soldier owned that shirt, that girl became another wife for that soldier, had to wash his clothes and cook his food and service him sexually. By the time she was 14, she had a little baby by that soldier that she'd been given to. She, would, she, tells, she told Marilyn how she would sometimes lie in the bush in the middle of the night and she would sing a song that she'd learned in Sunday school. My only hope is you, Jesus. My only hope is you. From early in the morning to late at night, my only hope is you. And she would cry. And when she cried, I believe Jesus heard her cry. She managed in a battle one day to escape. She walked for four months from South Sudan, where she was now, back to her village. When she got there, her grandmother had died. Her little baby died. And the next week, Marilyn showed up. And Marilyn reached out and put her arms around her, loved her, said, how can we help you? She said, I just want to go to school and be a nurse. I wanted to be normal. She said, we're going to help you to do that. We put her back in school. She graduated. She became a social worker. Today, Irene works on the border between Uganda and South Sudan as a, as a, work as a social worker with refugees, touching because she was touched, because that's what Jesus does through his body. I could tell you so many stories of how that happens. And it doesn't happen through a program in the church. It happens through the people who are the church. Moses is in the wilderness. He's looking after his father-in-law's sheep. He sees a bush on fire but not being consumed. He goes over to see what it is and God speaks to him and says, Moses, take off your shoes. It's holy ground. And then God speaks to Moses. He says, I have seen the misery of my people, and I have heard their cry. Whenever God hears and sees the misery and the cry, he responds. So he said to Moses, I've decided to do something about it. And you can hear Moses say, well, good for you, God. It's about time you showed up. But what did God say? So, Moses, I'm sending you. If there's a problem, God always sends a man or a woman. Moses does what? Make excuses. But God, who am I? The problem is so big. I'm so small. And God says, Moses, it doesn't matter who you are. It matters who. And then he says his name. I am. Moses, you and I, we're enough. But what if they don't hear me, God? What if they don't hear me? 
What's in your hand? It was just a stick, a dead piece of wood. Actually, it was this shepherd's staff, a symbol of his livelihood. He said, throw it on the ground. He threw it on the ground. It turned into a snake. He said, pick it up by its tail. He picked it up by its tail. And what was in his hand when given to God turned from a stick into a mighty rod of authority that parted the Red Sea and brought water out of the rock. Every one of us in this room has something in our hands. All of life belongs to God, not just what happens on Sunday in a building. It all belongs to him, politics and business and education. and It all belongs to him, and he sends his people out into the world to be his hand. You and me. And you don't have to go to university to get a degree in theology to love hurting people. I have a dream that there will be a new generation of young Canadian Christians who won't chase after the trinkets of life but will run with a passion after the God of heaven. Would you bow your heads with me for a moment? Father, I know that there are young people sitting in this building today that you are speaking to right now saying, I want to use you. I pray that they would open their hearts and say, here I am, Jesus, send me. And that you would raise up classical missionaries and preachers and pastors and teachers, but that you would also raise up doctors and lawyers and teachers and people who will go out to a hurting world and just love and give themselves without reservation. Young people with a dream. I pray for the, the moms and dads, those that are in their careers who are trying to pay off their mortgage and have resources at their hands, that they will, they will invest in the kingdom of God financially. I pray for moms and dads that are now seniors that are here, and I pray that you would inspire them to pray so that we can see a hurting world healed. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. You're listening to Maple View Community Church Podcast. 